there and welcome to our new ISA talk. In this episode, my colleague Kai Hello. and I Birgit talk to Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, who's known as the father of the MP3 format. What we really enjoyed during the talk were the first-hand insights he provided about what was going on behind the scenes of the international music industry at the time when the MP3 format was launched. And he met a very famous artist I would have loved to meet too. Guess who? Yeah, you will be surprised. He's acclaimed for pioneering work not only in audio coding, what is MP3, but also in psychoacoustics and 3D sound. Brandenburg has received numerous national and international research awards, prizes and honors for his work. Since 2000, he's professor of electronic media technology and former director of the Fraunhofer Institute for Digital Media Technology in Ilmenau, Germany. And it is a really great honor for us that Karl Heinz is a member of the ISAC jury for the third time. Okay, enough said. Now let's listen to him. So, hello, Karl-Heinz. We're very honored that you took the time to talk to us today. As we already mentioned in our introduction, you're often called the father of the MP3 format as you've been involved in the development of the MP3 audio standard together with the team at Fraunhofer Institute Erlangen. How can we imagine the work on a project like this? How many people were involved in the process and how many years took it to finally finish the product? Oh, that's uh, really, depending on what you're looking at, uh, that started out, in fact, 10 years before the final standard got finalized, uh, with uh, myself looking for a PhD topic. And Professor Seitzer, who had the idea in Erlangen that it should be possible to compress musical signals uh, to transmit them over ISDN, Remember, Integrated Services Digital Network, all technology. At that time, it was the newest, and he wanted to transmit music via that, and he applied for a patent for this, and the patent examiner told him, no, no, according to the state of the art, this is not possible. So in 1982, I got the task to have a closer look and see what's possible and what not. Uh, and in fact, that, starting from... Basically, myself getting advice from some colleagues at the university uh, grew into a bigger and bigger effort at Fraunhofer. I think at some point we uh, counted that uh, some 40 people were involved over time with a core group of something like seven or eight people who did major contributions. And of course, it's not just Fraunhofer. This is an international standard. So we did a close collaboration with other groups, uh, one in Hanover uh, at the, at that time, called Telefunken Labs, and uh, one which was very important as well uh, in the United States at AT&T Bell Labs, as they were called at that time. Uh, there was uh, Jim Johnston, who independently came to very similar ideas to the ones I developed for my PhD work. So 
when we worked together, it was very easy because we had very similar ideas. Uh, if you count in all who gave advice and were involved in standardization, of course, the group is even larger and we could count probably some 60, 70 people who had some involvement, some discussions on this topic. And how many years took it until you finished the product? Uh, it took first some seven years until my PhD thesis was finalized. Um, it took five years until the effort grew from just one PhD candidate together with uh, a number of diploma thesis candidates and so on uh, to a real group at when Fraunhofer was founded in Erlangen. Um, and then it was another five years with fortunately a lot of public funding, otherwise we couldn't have done that. Uh, to really have candidates for standardization get through all the political troubles and then have this technology standardized as one of the three modes with an MPEG-1 audio. So that was the original work. Uh, early on there was this publicly funded project in Europe uh, for a digital radio service and that uh, time it was called Eureka DAB, Digital Audio Broadcasting. And uh, there, of course, were other companies involved as well. In fact, we had a fierce competition in this. So when we met again in the standards group, uh, we had different uh, proposals. And one of these proposals uh, was led by the Institut für Rundfunktechnik in Munich together with Philips and CCETT. That became the layer two of MPEG audio. And another proposal was us together, together with Thomson in Hanover and AT&T. And that proposal was originally called ASPEC, but that developed taking in some other ideas into the layer three of MPEG-1 audio, which is now nicknamed MP3. Final technical freeze was really end of 1992. So it was 10 years and then of course came long years uh, of trying to find what to do with this technology. Because in the early days, everybody looked to the compromise between complexity and audio quality and went on to use layer two audio. And only when people started to transfer uh, music over internet, uh, they decided to use MP3. And that way from 1995 on really, we had the successful story of MP3 on the internet. Mm -hmm. So that's a good um, keyword for my next question, because in a few interviews you said that you knew this could change the music industry immensely, as creating and sharing MP3s had become very easy for everyone. So actually the situation back then resulted in widespread copyright infringements, and the major record companies referred to it as music piracy, and they even sued the first file-sharing network, uh, Napster. 
So according to you, what would have been a good handling with the situation for the music industry at that time? First, uh, while we originally had digital radio in mind, uh, there were quite early on people saying, okay, look at the internet and that will become very big. On the other hand, uh, there was uh, somebody, some young entrepreneur uh, of Indian descent from the UK who uh, was looking for such technologies. And I still remember when he visited us in Erlangen and sat there and asked us, do you know that you will destroy the music industry? <laughs> that was 94. So before we even used the name MP3 for this technology. And of course, that was not what we intended to do, definitely. So in fact, in the same year, a small group of us, uh, I was not in that meeting, but of course I heard people reporting, visited uh, the offices of one of the major labels in Munich at that time. So you probably know which one must be it. And uh, they told about that story and the answer from the music industry was, oh, you've done very interesting work, good research, but what does that have to do with us? So they just refused to think about these ideas. And that continued for a few years. In fact, uh, I later tried to get into direct contact uh, with the uh, US music industry. So I went to Washington DC and visited them. And they took things already very serious. I think it was 95. And we discussed that, okay, we should use some encryption technology to make uh, illegal use more difficult, uh, but it should be done in a way that uh, the intended use is not prohibited. Um, we even developed technology for that in Erlangen. But again, music industry uh, didn't really go on with this. The people there who said, oh, we have our nice business model, let's go on with that. Why should we think about other things? They really decided what to do. And the next part in that was the Secure Digital Music Initiative. Uh, in the late 90s, eight, early 2000s, when they finally woke up and uh, got big meetings of technology companies, technology providers, the labels themselves were just financing, but not influencing directly the discussions. But then people thought about complicated systems uh, for securing uh, the music, so complicated uh, that you needed uh, special devices, which at that time made things much slower than they needed to be. And they failed to work on a technical standard on interoperability. So I remember that twice uh, in the plenary sessions, I got up and told everybody in the room, look, you have two possibilities. 
Once is you will go the standardization route or MP3 without any protection will win. And they opted for the second. <laughs> of course, they didn't want to, but uh, there were some companies in there who wanted to win the world on their own, who thought they had technology and their technology should be the exclusive one. So they uh, were against all standardization. They say standardization stifles progress. Okay, we see where we got. <laughs> So yes, we, we tried a lot. Uh, in fact, what would have been much better if in the late 90s, when things just started, they would already have embraced other business models as we see them today and uh, went on to have legal distribution on music with reasonable pricing and uh, available in an interoperable way all over the world. Uh, speaking of reasonable pricing, there were some early attempts. In fact, there was some pilot test early on in the US on the West Coast. And there was a music on demand system of Deutsche Telekom, which was not just a pilot test, but really running for many years. But selling the music for these systems was done under control of the major labels. And they said, no, we don't want to harm other business in any way. So if you download music, it has to be at least as expensive as if you go to the store and buy the CD. And of course, not many people did that. It was only later on Apple, uh, who convinced the labels that different business models are necessary in this case. Okay, so like then, uh, today we have a quite similar situation because uh, a lot of people um, consume music via streaming services. You know, they, they don't, there are some people still buying uh, vinyl or CDs and some also downloading music. But of course, we all have a lot of streaming services. And so this is maybe a similar situation back to back then. How do you see parallel developments or um, to the situation uh, back then caused by the MP3? Uh, no, I don't think this is radically different. In fact, in the late 90s, I remember discussions in 97, for example, people already thought about streaming. And I remember that some people were claiming, look, within a few years, there will be only streaming and nothing else. And I said, no, look, people are different. There are different kinds of people. There are a lot of hunters and gatherers who want to own their music. So I see uh, these different business models to go on in parallel. Uh, in fact, uh, to go via streaming services now, I think got more than 50% of the market. So that's in fact even more than I thought at that time, but it's still not everything. And I still, it will go on for quite some time to come. Yes, I guess also these services, uh, they can 
exist in parallel. Because, you know, I'm a record collector, so I'm buying vinyl, and uh, you cannot compare a vinyl to, to a uh, digital format. You have the vinyl, you have the covers, you have something in the hands. I put it on my um, record player, so I guess also it's, uh, they will can exist both together, depending on the user, what he wants to do with the music. In fact, that uh, is already a bridge to our current research in Ilmenau, now, because we've been thinking, why are people preferring different formats and what is going on there? And that's still ongoing research. How do, do our ears and brain really Uh, listen to music, what's happening there. And something which is now quite well understood, not into its detail, but quite well understood, is that uh, when we listen to music, our brain always compares that to internal references from a lot of different modalities. So yes, if you like feeling the vinyl disc, If you like seeing it, you have a better feeling, you will like it better in the end. On the other hand, people who never had that, they will say, so what? No, I think this is perfect. So we have the two big areas. On one hand, uh, really sound quality in terms of what can the human ear distinguish, which is quite well understood and which in some sense even is mechanical most of, uh, mostly. It's mechanics in the inner ear, which have a lot to do in what we can hear and what we can't. And this is what MP3, for example, uses and AAC and all these. And then we get to spatial hearing, where we get the signals from the two ears together, where we get different sound depending on the room we are in, and so on and so on. And this listening is to a large degree really based on belief of what we like. Okay, I see. In 2000, you got the possibility to open new, a new Fraunhofer Institute in Ilmenau. Uh, you were also director there until 2019, if I'm correct. And one field of research there was, or is until today, 3D sound. Uh, the research on Fraunhofer seems to be based on the wave field synthesis. Uh, before we get a bit into concrete products, which were developed at Fraunhofer, I would like to ask, could you explain in a few sentences what the wave field synthesis is and what the big advantage of the wave field synthesis compared to classics round sounds like 5.1 setups, ETC? Okay, that's an easy one. Really? <laughs> uh, you have to just uh, look a little bit again at physics as sound propagates in a room and you'll find that uh, you have reflections at the walls, uh, you get sound from different directions coming in to you, and you have the wave field in the end. So if we take classic surround technologies, they are usually just built on the 
old idea of stereophony, which means you have the right signal energy from the different directions. But that misses out on a lot of the modalities on hearing. For example, in a real room, if you turn your head, if you walk around, you get a different sound to your ears and the brain, in fact, uses that to get a better idea of what is really happening around you. This is even more the case, of course, and you are if you are in a concert hall and so on, but even at home, that's a major effect. Now, there are some technologies, not just wave field synthesis, we got higher order ambisonics as well, who just try to take the uh, mathematics behind it, a number of microphones, and then when playing back, trying to simulate the original wavefront in a full room and not just at this one place in the middle. And that makes you feel like you are somewhere else. It's not complete illusion. In fact, if you close your eyes, it's better than if you see what room you are in. <laughs> it doesn't work in rooms which have a lot of reflections themselves. So it's best in dry rooms and Fortunately, for example, in uh, movie theaters, we have a lot of damping. So these are good for this. And it allows you to get a really great illusion of sound around you at all sides within the many loudspeakers you need and outside. Uh, so we also would like you to uh, tell us a little bit about Iosono. I guess in 2004, Fraunhofer presented this uh, first product as a result of the research on 3D audio. And Iosono was founded as spin-off to market the hard and software for 3D audio. So how was the market for systems like this back then? And was Iosono something completely new at the time? At the time, I think we had one other company which had similar project, but uh, it was perceived as being new and being the most visible company at that time. In fact, Iosono was a bit early and was underfinanced and had some troubles with its management. So unfortunately, that didn't work out in the long run. But at that time, Uh, we could uh, do demos, and I remember when we did the uh, first demo here in Ilmenau, which was publicly available, that we later heard from uh, Dolby people that there were internal phone calls. Oh, why didn't you tell us this is going on and so on? So other companies were taken by surprise, but of course they kept working, and the basic ideas... Uh, of Iosono, the object-based uh, recording and storage and then trying to render it to whatever loudspeakers you have available in a room. That basic idea is now well established. Um, there are now other companies who sometimes say they have invented that idea, but no, <laughs> it wasn't in San Francisco. It wasn't in Ilmenau, in fact, it was in Delft in uh, the Netherlands, where people came up with that idea and we 
worked with them and took it one step further. Mm-hmm. And uh, one um, curious fact about Iosono, I read that you once met Michael Jackson, the king of pop, because he was very fascinated by Iosono and he even wanted to use the sound system for his world tour, I guess in 2004 it must have been. So, um, yeah, please tell us a little bit about this. Okay, there were some people who wanted to co-organize this tour and uh, they got us into contact and uh, we had a number of uh, really um, yeah, meetings. Uh, first, in fact, was that one of the producers, mixers working for him, I don't remember the name, came to Ilmenau and He had uh, original tracks with him. We explained the technology to him and within really a very short time, I think one or two hours, uh, he did a mix of black and white for Iosono. <laughs> and this sounded really great. We had really Michael Zach, uh, Jackson standing there virtually and all the other instruments and so on. Unfortunately, He knew the systems, so he knew how to erase everything that we couldn't have this demo to go on. This would have been nice. And later on, in fact, uh, I went to Neverland twice. Uh, we discussed things. Uh, the first direct contacts were rather strange, like, who is that on the phone? <laughs> uh, but then when visiting him, he... Uh, much more was like a normal businessman uh, trying to uh, negotiate, okay, then everything Iosono should have by Michael Jackson on it and things like that. Um, uh, we installed a small system in Neverland in his studio. Uh, so one of The people working at Fraunhofer was there for a full week to set up everything. Um, and yeah, then there was again the problem that he was accused uh, about child molestation and everything broke down. Mm-hmm. Oh, too bad, but very interesting. And yeah, one last question on 3D audio. An actual development in 3D sound from Fraunhofer is a spatial sound wave. What are the differences compared to Iosono and where is the technology used at the moment? Um, that uh, is the direct successor to the wave field synthesis we used in Iosono. There was always the problem that we needed too many loudspeakers on one hand. And there were some problems if you try to do just the math right, you get certain artifacts in playback, which again are not good for musical reproductions. So we built something which is more based on actual listening tests to get rid of these artifacts. Uh, some of the original nice demos can't be done in exactly the same way anymore, but it's much more practical. And mostly this is now used uh, in uh, 
big venues, planetaria, I think now most, if not all, of the major, the larger planetaria in Germany have the system. Uh, we have built a different version of that uh, already quite some time ago, in 2004, for the Bregenz Outdoor uh, Opera Festival. And uh, there are more of such systems uh, I think even in the US in the moment, at least throughout Europe, but I uh, don't have the latest information on that, just know it's still going on. In fact, of, speaking of 3D technologies, uh, what we've looked on again is again how to bring that via headphones. So if you are interested, I don't know whether that was one of your questions, but I would love to tell you. Yes, we'd love to hear that. <laughs> okay. In fact, to get 3D sound via headphones is an old dream as well. And some people might remember dummy head stereophony. Uh, and all earlier systems got better and better, but didn't really work. So... Uh, this being an old dream, some, I think it's now 10 years ago, started basic research at the university here in Ilmenau to find out what's going wrong and what to do about it. And, okay, if you just have dummy head stereophony, it's very easy to say what's going wrong uh, because uh, our ears get the signals uh, to the eardrum uh, modified via the pinner, the form of the head, and so on. This is called head-related transfer functions. If we are in a real environment and turn the head or walk around, the sound, even from the same sound source, coming to our brain changes all the time which would be very disturbing if our brain would not be very clever in dealing with that. And this clever dealing of our brain is that it knows the properties of our outer ear and of the room, and then does some uh, readjustment so it feels like the same person speaking, even if it's in reality the sound is changing all the time. Now, if I have headphones on, I turn my head and nothing changes. And there's a simple logical conclusion. If the sound doesn't change while I'm turning my head and walking around, it must come from within the head. And that's our usual in-head localization of two-channel stereo. Uh, people have done a lot of research, starting with dummy head recording, which already uh, simulates some things better in how our ear works, with changing these according uh, to an, uh, <clears throat> some electronics to find out where I'm looking and how I turn my head, uh, and so on and so on. All this made things better, but it still doesn't work all the time and for everybody. 
And in fact, something which happened to several research groups in this field is that, okay, there's young aspiring researchers saying, okay, I want to solve this problem. Uh, listens to the music, looks into literature, changes things, listens again, changes things, listening again. And that sometimes claims, oh, yes, I've done it. Hats, hands over the headphone to the colleague, takes it on, says, what? This sounds as ever. <laughs> so it's in reality our brain which is able to adapt to this. So we can train ourselves, but that takes a very long time. So that's not really feasible for consumer products. But that's one major effect. Another major effect, again, has been seen by a lot of people over the decades. So it was so-called anecdotal evidence. <laughs> people talked about it, but there were no scientific papers. And that is that if you do such demos and you do it in the same room where you did the recording, it works great. If you go somewhere else, it breaks down and you get front-back confusion and so on and so on. So again, that has to do with how our brain learns to use the reflections in a room. And if the brain remembers, okay, this is a room, then even with closed headphones, it remembers that. And if you try to simulate a different rooms, again, you get into trouble. So that's what we call room divergence nowadays. And then, of course, there's other modalities. If you see something and what you hear doesn't match what you see, again, you can get into trouble and so on. And all this together is quite complicated system of different influences, which we try to find out what's happening there. And I gave that to one uh, PhD candidate long time ago. And others told me, okay, yes, but that's not one PhD thesis, that's at least 10. And this person was right. We are still going on, but we have now a lot of progress. And uh, in the moment, unfortunately, only in Ilmenau, but you already can get demos where you walk around and see something. And uh, one of my favorites is a demo where you see a loudspeaker, you walk back and forth. And then it's switched back and forth between the actual loudspeaker and the simulated one. And with enough statistical evidence, people can't distinguish. So it already works very well in certain cases. And we are continuing with that. And in fact, that's my current work in part as well, not just supervising this research. But I started last fall Brandenburg Labs as a spin-off from the university where we, over the next few years, want to commercialize this technology together with Fraunhofer, who have some patents there and some technology. And the idea is really about personalized auditory reality where you have very good reproduction, but you can even influence virtually the room you are in. Sounds sounds great, very interesting. So, of course, we will have an eye on it. How, uh, what comes out there? What will the results? And um, 
at the Fraunhofer or Fraunhofer also develops on flat loudspeakers. Uh, will these developments help to bring immersive sound into the consumer electronic area? Uh, or what are the technical challenges to bring the technology into the automotive and the consumer area? On a technical challenges, maybe other challenges uh, that people uh, accept the technology or... Uh, regarding our flat panel loudspeakers, that development now is relatively old as well. And the hurdles, the challenges were more on the economic side than on the actual acoustic and technological side. So we have these working. Uh, there were quite a number of people who wanted to buy them right away. Uh, there is a company, small company in Weimar, who I don't know whether they're even still existing, but they wanted to sell them. They demonstrated them on the high-end uh, trade show and got good feedback. Uh, but again, economic troubles, not enough money to do the final development and to have uh, uh, ways to sell them really just uh, other than direct selling. Um, so the problems are more on this side. Uh, you need a lot of small exciters. So the basic ideas uh, uh, come from, couldn't it work with a little bit of signal processing and using a lot of small loudspeakers that you still get enough sound pressure levels that it sounds fine even to relatively low frequencies down to 100 hertz, then you need a subwoofer anyway. So no way around that. Uh, so this is one of the technologies which is available, uh, but didn't find its way into the market. And I'm very interested whether the people in Ilmenau will still be able to sell that to other licensees or to uh, or we will see some other company at some point coming up with a similar idea when the patent ran out and so on. In fact, we had originally already a company who wanted to build such devices, but the exciters we used at that time were from a collaboration with Sennheiser, which provided us with enough of these uh, for all our experiments and to sell them to a few single customers. But then uh, business development with Sennheiser um, decided against uh, building a product based on that. And then a company policy came in that they wouldn't give their high quality um, exciters, which were used for high-quality headphones, for example, uh, cheap for different technology. And what we had to find out uh, was, yes, uh, in terms of what we needed, in terms of accuracy, uh, so no differences between different samples and so on, Sennheiser had such a technological leap was uh, such a way ahead in terms of technology compared to others 
that for a long time we couldn't find others. Now we got some others, but again, more, quite a bit expensive. Okay. So um, what do you think? Uh, what can we expect within the next years in the field of 3D audio? Uh, could the development of virtual reality technology be one decisive driver for the 3D sound? Um, I hope so. I know that the companies who develop VR headset, uh, right, Oculus, uh, of course, uh, it's no longer Oculus uh, by the company, um, uh, like others, uh, work a lot on these issues. And there are conferences where they show what they've done. And what I've heard last year, uh, for example, uh, in San Francisco at an AES conference and the year before at the AVAR in Redmond, uh, for me was very unsatisfying. So they have to go a long way they know what to do. There's a lot of research. Uh, so at some point, there will be much better systems. And in fact, at the same time, there's standardization going on in the Moving Pictures Experts Group again, under the headline of MPEG-I, I as immersive. And uh, there the usual way in MPEG, people were discussing requirements and how to test. And even then we find, oh, this is much more difficult than just to test for the quality of MP3 or AAC. Because what is the reference? You have the internal reference. Uh, how do you really do that? Uh, what is needed? What about the interaction with video, which we know is happening? Uh, how much can we factor into such a systems and so on and so on. So yes, for the virtual and augmented reality world, uh, there's a lot of work all over the world. And I see especially uh, big possibilities for the augmented reality topics like our party, our personalized auditory reality system. But again, uh, there's still basic research going on for some of the uh, issues you need to be solved there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Wow, this was a lot of interesting facts or knowledge, or I guess also pretty much insider knowledge, <laughs> which uh, was now told by you. And... Um, we are also very grateful that you are jury member for the ISA 2020, International Sound Awards 2020. So just uh, short questions. What do you expect from the projects this year? You just received the submission material for judging, but of course you cannot talk about the projects now, but what would you uh, say about the projects, maybe what were the projects last year? Can you see a, a development or a trend? Because you're, um, do you remember, I guess, for the third time now? Um, I'm very curious. 
I couldn't look into the material yet. I downloaded okay. it successfully last night. <laughs> and I remember from the last year that we had uh, very different kinds of proposals. And for me, that's great to see uh, what different kinds of ideas people really have. This goes from technology demonstrations to virtual reality to uh, really the classic uh, soundscapes and how to advertise something using sound and all that. Uh, in fact, last time I was especially uh, impressed by the different kinds of soundscapes people did and for which purposes. I remember banks and things like that. Last year, you also uh, hold a keynote at the award gala. Unfortunately, this year, it is not sure if the Rainbow Barn Festival can take place at all and if there will be an award show. Um, but okay, let's cross fingers. Thank you very much that you took your time for this interview and uh, was a lot of interesting insider knowledge. So uh, I hope you have, you will enjoy evaluating the cases, rating the cases. So you just got the material. And yes, Mona, thanks. Thank you very much and see or hear you soon. Yeah, thank you very much, Karl-Heinz. And we are really excited to see all the results from you and your uh, jury colleagues. Um, so we're really excited about the ISA 2020 and we'll see you there in a way. So thank you very much for the time today and all the best to you. You're very welcome. All the best and health to you. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you don't want to miss our next episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast. We will also keep you posted about updates on the International Sound Awards 2020. Currently, the jury is evaluating the submitted cases and in June we will announce the results. So stay tuned and bye-bye. <laughs>